0: Welcome to all of you tonight. Great to be with you. Take your Bibles and meet me in 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. That's where we're going to start tonight. Now, we're not going to stay there. No, no, we're going to be hopping around a little bit tonight. So fair warning, if you intend on following along in your Bible you better keep your fingers warmed up, all right, because we're going to be turning some pages tonight. Now, this is why some of you have opted for the digital route, all right? You got your Bible on your phone or on your smart tablet, and clickety-click, you can be where anywhere in the Bible in about a half a second. I understand there's some of you, you're old school, you're like, no, sir, I'm not doing that digital stuff. I got my five-pound leather-bound right here, just like Jesus used, and I'm turning pages. I don't much care. It's all Bible. I'm good, all right? So whatever you want to do, whatever floats your boat, you want to follow along on our screens up here, that's fine with me. But we are going to move around tonight because we're talking about the Bible. That is the series that we're in, and it's called The Thoughts of God. What is this series? This wonderful thing that we open, uh, whereby we, we hear from the Lord. Where did it come from? Uh, and what are we to do with it? And can it be trusted? These are the questions that we are exploring in this series. Last week, we looked at the doctrine of revelation and how God delivers His Word. Uh, the, the revealing of the thoughts of God to the mind of man. And tonight, I want to look at something that I find rather interesting. Interesting. Because there have been, as of late, some grievances within Christian circles. There have been some some ideas raised that perhaps the church needs to move away, needs to distance itself from the Old Testament. And for some, that seems anathema. They couldn't possibly imagine such a thing. But for others, they cringe whenever they hear the following phrase, the Bible says, All right. Now, you've heard that phrase, you've probably used that phrase, as have I, in conversation. Whenever somebody raises an issue, a topic, maybe it's a moral issue, an ethical issue, a theological thing, if you are well-read, you know your Bible, you probably will chime in and say, well, you know, the Bible says, and there are some progressives within Christian circles that wince when that phrase is uttered because they're afraid of what might come next because it might be something from the Old Testament. And that makes them uncomfortable. They feel awkward about that because the Old Testament has ideas that are not readily accessible to just anyone and everyone. And so there is a move to kind of distance Christianity from the Old Testament. In fact, there's a very well-known pastor, very well-known author and teacher and leader. Uh, You might recognize his name if I said it to you. Uh, I'm not gonna mention it here. You wanna know? You come ask me, I'll tell you. I don't feel the need to divulge it right now. You're smart enough, you probably figured it out on your own. But this guy said in a podcast not that long ago, with regard to the Old Testament, with regard to the habit of Christians to constantly say, the Bible said, and I quote, he said, I'm trying desperately to help people understand there was no the Bible back in the first century in Jesus' day. In fact, the Bible didn't exist until the fourth century. And when we think about the Bible, he says, we think about a book that contains the Jewish scripture and Christian writing, and such a thing did not exist until Christianity became legal and he went on he said no one ever said in the early church the bible says or the bible teaches because the bible did not exist he said they talk about scripture uh but every time we see that phrase in the new testament we need to stop and question what did that person mean by that phrase the scripture and this guy actually in a sermon said that we as christians need to and this is his word unhitch from the old testament And he literally said that Peter, James, and Paul all unhitched from the Old Testament. And my friends, we must as well. Is he right? Well, one can argue that uh, what he meant by this is he's merely implying that we should resist the temptation to quote the Old Testament out of context. Totally agree with that. I think that's a separate conversation. But when I look at the words of what he's saying and what others are saying... I have to disagree. Because when they say in particular that the Bible did not exist in the first century, uh, au contraire, I take issue with that. Because we do have Jesus and Peter and Paul in your New Testament saying, the scriptures say, to what are they referring? Why, none other than the Hebrew scriptures. What you and I think of when we think of the Old Testament. Because the fact, the fact is, folks, that the Old Testament, as we know it, was the only Bible that Jesus read, all right? And so he was the Word made flesh, but the the canon of Scripture at that time was what we think of as the Old Testament. It was the Hebrew Scriptures. And so when somebody says that the early church and the major players in the New Testament era that they never quoted from the Old Testament or that they unhitched from the Old Testament, I think we should ask them, Let's take a look, shall we? I want us to ask the principal players of the New Testament, what are your thoughts on the Old Testament? And I want to start with the Apostle Paul. So take a look, if you will, at 1 Timothy 3, verse 14. Paul approaches his young ward, a guy named Timothy, young preacher boy, and he says in verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. I read this verse last week and I highlighted that phrase. And if you're following along, I'd like you to make sure you underline that phrase, sacred writings. Because in the Greek, that is the phrase hiera graphe. All right, two words. Hiera comes from the word hieron, which is a reference to the temple. Graphe means writings. And so they are writings, and that word writings is modified by a word that pertains to the dwelling place of God, the place where his presence in the Old Testament era rested, in the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could go. Over the Ark of the Covenant, you had the cloud called the Shekinah glory of God. And so by using that phrase, we get a glimpse at Paul's perspective on the Old Testament, because what are the writings that young Timothy would be familiar with? It'd be what he has known since he was a child. What did he study and learn from his, uh, his mother and grandmother and such as a child? Well, it wasn't the book of Ephesians, because that didn't exist. So what are we talking about? We're talking about the Hebrew text. So by calling it the sacred writings, the hierographae, in your notes, Paul is saying it contains the glory of God just like the temple, contained the glory of God, these Hebrew texts contain the glory of God. Sounds like Paul had great regard for the Old Testament as we know it. And so as we look at this, we understand the power of the word, all right? We are not ascribing more worth to the Bible than it is due. There is an accusation against people that, that, that are consumed with the Scripture, people that study the Scripture, that are very concerned with what it has to say on matters pertaining to life and doctrine. There is an accusation that we're engaging in some form of idolatry. They call it bibliolatry. They're trying to be smart. And they're saying, we worship Jesus, not the Bible. All right, I give you that we worship Jesus. Of course we worship Jesus, but where do you learn about Jesus? You learn about Jesus from the word of God. No one was ever saved apart from hearing the word. Romans 10, 14, how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? What would somebody in Paul's day be preaching from? It would have to be from the Hebrew text. And so that's what we're looking at. So as we continue on, In 2 Timothy 3, looking at verse 16, it says, All scripture. All scripture. Remember, what scripture is he talking about? The sacred writings, the Old Testament scriptures. And how much of it? All. Remember last week, all means all, and that's all all means. All scripture is what? Is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so here we get another glimpse into Paul's perspective on the old Hebrew text. Not only does it contain the glory of God, but in your notes, it is completely beneficial for the believer. Why is it beneficial? Because it is breathed out by God. Remember, it is, it is inspired, is, is our English word. Where does that word inspired come from? It comes from that Greek compound word that he uses Theonoustos, God-breathed. The word inspired comes from that word, and that is the first time in human history it is ever used, and it's in reference to the Hebrew text, the Old Testament. That's what he's talking about. And because it's God-breathed, he follows that up with this laundry list of all the benefits that we get from it. Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. Everything that you need as a New Testament believer is found in the Old Testament text in terms of, of, of your growth, spiritual growth, according to what Paul is saying right here. And so it's very apparent that Paul, the heaviest of hitters in the New Testament, has immense regard for the Old Testament. Is the Old Testament relevant? Well, according to Paul, yes, indeed. It is. Now, how about Peter? Let's look at another heavy hitter, shall we? Look at Peter. I want you to look at 2 Peter chapter 1. What is his view on the Old Testament? We're going we're to walk through this passage in chapter 1, starting in verse 16. Okay, so Peter starts off here. He says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He said, we didn't concoct this this isn't just something we hatched. We, the apostles, we didn't gather for breakfast on Saturday morning down at Hersey's and just kind of banter about and say, hey, yeah, Matthew, great, call it, yeah, let's put that in here. No. He said we didn't follow myths. We were, he says, the eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor, and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Well, what in the world is he describing there? Peter is referencing an event that he was present for. All right, Peter is, is hearkening back to an instance uh, where he was there with Jesus, With a select group of the disciples. And it's an event that you and I call the transfiguration. The transfiguration of Christ. And it's described in three of the Gospels. And we're going to look at a text that unfolds what happened there. So look at Matthew 17. And in verse 3, Matthew describes the transfiguration event. He says, and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. I kind of find this this little instance funny. I mean, picture the scene. They're on a mountain. They're with Jesus. God's about to bestow glory upon Christ, affirming that this is the one. This is my chosen One, my son in the flesh, he is the Messiah. He is the one who is going to come again in glory and eventually establish his kingdom on the earth as prophesied. And lo and behold, who is there beside Jesus and the disciples, there are two Old Testament figures. And so here's Peter. What a surreal scene. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, uh, I will make three tents here. One for you and one for... Moses and Elijah. I mean, Moses has been dead for centuries. Elijah was plucked from the earth, caught a uh, you know, whirlwind of fire and went to heaven, right? One of only two people that's ever happened to. They're not supposed to be here, and yet here they are. In verse 5 says, He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son uh, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So that is the account of the transfiguration, which affirmed Christ as the son of God. And who is there to, to validate it? It is, it is these two, these two Old Testament figures, Moses and Elijah, probably, probably two of the most prominent figures in all the Old Testament. And so in your notes, what does Peter think about the Old Testament based on this passage? It serves to prophetically validate Jesus. These two Old Testament figures. And then if we go back to 2 Peter, in in chapter 1, verse 19, about this event, he says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Because of that transfiguration, because the glory of God came down, enveloped Christ, and the Lord spoke and affirmed him as the one in whom he is well pleased, that alone was not enough for that confirmation. What made it extra special is that it confirmed what the Old Testament had prophesied. You got two guys there. Why Moses and Elijah? Because Moses wrote, there will come one who is a prophet just like me. Listen to him. And in the book of Malachi, you read about this other guy, Elijah, that says that he's going to come again uh, before the kingdom. All right? Well, does Elijah come again before the kingdom? He sure does. He comes in in Luke in the form of John the Baptist who prophesies and prepares the way for the Messiah. And Peter is saying that this prophetic word, this Old Testament, is that which confirms Christ as the Messiah. And he goes and he says, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. What is the dark place that he's talking about right there? Do we live in a dark place Man, the world is exceedingly dark, isn't it? Each and every day there's a new level of just when you think it couldn't get any darker. But praise God, we got a lamp to help us navigate that darkness. What is that lamp according to this passage right here? It's it's the prophetic word. That is our lamp. And so in your notes, what does Peter think about the Old Testament? It's a source of light in today's darkness, what is the Old Testament we look to that we are in a pretty dark place we need illumination and the prophetic word informs us of the coming of the son of man there's a Hebrew word Maranatha come quickly Lord come quickly Lord how does the New Testament end it ends with John saying come Lord Jesus you guys ready I'm ready for him to come back okay Uh, some people mock us for that when we we talk about I'm going to teach on prophecy in the spring we're going to talk about the Lord's return some people don't like that they say oh you guys are so weak you're preoccupied with the coming of the Lord you know suck it up you need to get tough hey would you say that to Paul? would you say that to John? because you know what I think they were preoccupied with it as well as Peter they were living like he's coming back today they were hoping for it they were longing for it so Peter says you would do well to pay attention. Whenever disaster strikes, whenever calamity strikes, what do people do? They, they gravitate towards something that is firm, something that is immovable. What do we have that's immovable? The scripture. And we point to that. And he says, you will have a lamp shining in a dark place until what time? He goes on, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The day that dawns, he speaks of this morning star. What is the morning star? Uh, We associate it with Christ right here. But, But what is it? You ask an astronomer, they'll tell you the morning star traditionally is Venus. One of the planets. And it rises in the night sky. And it's one of the last stars you see before daybreak. And so they call it the morning star because it announces a new day. And so one day, the morning star, Jesus Christ, when he comes... He will take us home. He will be the announcement of a new day, a brighter day. I'm looking forward to that day right there. And then Peter goes on. We look at verse 20. He says, knowing this, first of all, first of all, and I want you to underline that phrase, first of all, why does he say that? Because in your notes, this is fundamental to the church. What is fundamental? This concept that he's about to unleash on us. It is vital. It is preeminent for the church. you got to get this. He's about to delve into the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. Now, I'm going to talk more deeply about inspiration and inerrancy. Inspiration is the the supernatural delivery of the Word to human, uh, divinely appointed authors. Inerrancy refers to the fact that the Bible has no errors in it whatsoever. And I'm going to talk about that next week. But I want you to know this is fundamental. Everything that I say from this platform is predicated on the fact that I believe that the Bible is God's word and there are no flaws in it whatsoever. Okay? And that's why we can stand on it. That's why we can stand on it. And there are people who have a problem with that. They don't like what the word of God has to say and so they don't want to be encumbered by it and they seek to liberate themselves from it. Uh, Even intellectuals do this scholars do this people that claim to be christians do this you know what we call those people who want to liberate themselves we call them liberals (laughs) and that's not a joke that is literally not a joke that's what you call someone when someone is liberal in an area they are seeking to liberate themselves from the confines of that mindset of that philosophy they become a liberal politically they they want to liberate themselves from it Uh, theologically you have theological liberals i don't like what the word of god says and so i will say what god has not said i will not say i will in fact deny what god has said sounds like the of a certain serpent from day one in the garden has this been his mo did god really say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden did god say that no. So he's always been about the twisting. He's still at work doing that today. Peter goes on. He says this. This is, this is what is, is fundamental, okay? First of all, here we go, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Well, what does that sound like? That sounds like theonustos. That sounds like what Paul was saying. All scripture is God-breathed. What's Peter saying? No prophecy of scripture came from man. But they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So if we know that and we embrace that as fundamental, what does that mean for teachers of the word? Guys like me. That means I don't get to put my own spin on the Bible. That means I need to teach it as it is because I didn't write that. I can't be up here giving you my opinion. Folks, I don't even, that doesn't even interest me. There's no job in ministry that is enticing to me where I would just stand here and spew out of the ignorance of my own brain. That wouldn't do you any good. And I don't even want to do that. Like, I'd literally consider Sunday as a waste of time if I were just going to get up here and just shoot from the hip and just tell you what I think about life. I would rather stay home and watch the Panthers lose, <laughs> all right, <laughs> than do that, uh, or whatever your team is, okay? Um, so practically, this is not our word. It is God's word. And he says no prophecy came from man there is not a, there's no prophet intellectually brilliant enough to produce anything that merits being in this canon right here not Jeremiah not Daniel not Ezekiel not Amos not Obadiah not Jonah not Micah all the way to Malachi it's from God and God alone they were moved by something acting on them from the outside and according to Peter what is that force that acted upon them it wasn't a force it was a person named the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit spoke into them. So here, just to recap, so far, where are we? Paul, what do you think about the Old Testament? All scriptures God breathed. Peter, what do you think about the Old Testament? No prophecy comes from man, it's all from God. By the Holy Spirit. You got Theonustos, you got Hagias, Numa, and these writers were carried along, including Peter and Paul, but everybody before them as well. So that's, that's Paul, that's Peter. How about Jesus? What did Jesus think of the Old Testament? Well, let's look, shall we? John 10. John 10, starting in verse 31. And we're going to get a glimpse. We're going to look deep into his words, and we're going to find out his perspective on the Old Testament. And what we're going to see here in John 10 is we're going to see the unfolding of a very familiar scene (laughs) in the ministry and life of Jesus. Look at verse 31. It says... The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, (laughs) and I kind of chuckle at that. There's two things that I see there. Number one, they're mad, like they're mad because they obviously they want to kill him. They're picking up stones. They're going to stone him. The second thing is the word "again," like this is not the first time. Like he has riled them up something fierce more than once. And Jesus, verse 32, answered them, and I love this. I think this is hilarious. He says. I've shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? (laughs) Nobody talked like him, man. And uh, why would you uh, possibly want to stone me? I've I've done nothing but good to you. And so what they say in verse 33, they answer him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself a god. And so they want to stone him because he's claiming to be God. Did he claim to be God? Yes. If you were to go back to verse 30, what's the thing that he said? He said, I and the Father are one. Absolutely, that is a claim of divinity, and the Jews were not confused by it. They got this right. He was claiming to be divine, but here's what Jesus says in verse 34. He answered them and says, is it not written in your law? Oh, this is brilliant. Oh, this is brilliant because he knows what they revere. They revere the Holy Scriptures, right? What are we talking about? The Hebrew text. He said, is is it not written in your law? And here's what he quotes from the law. He says, I said you are gods. And what he's doing, he's quoting from Psalm 82. And And this is gods with a small g. This is not God's on the level of Christ, God the Father. This is a small g. And he is speaking uh, from Psalm 82, where it talks about human politicians, uh, judges, that they were given a unique privilege by God to grant pardon or death. They were judges. And so all authority, humanly speaking, is granted by God. There is no human authority that does not have that authority because God gave him that authority. To take life, to give life, all right? And then he goes on here and he says in verse 35 if he called them gods, here we go, to whom the word of God came, all right? Now, that's a very important turn of phrase because it gives us a glimpse into how Jesus viewed the Old Testament. What did he reference? Is it not written in your law? And then what does he quote? The Psalms. What is that? That's the Old Testament. That's the Hebrew scriptures. Now, he says, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came. He calls the Hebrew scriptures the word of God. All right? So that phrase tells us how Jesus viewed the content of the Hebrew scriptures. And then, <laughs> how, did those, how did that word exist? He said, to whom the word of God came. It came. They didn't write it. They didn't concoct it. They didn't conjure it up. No, no. It was delivered. So in your notes, what does Jesus think about the Old Testament? It has supernatural content and delivery. He leaves no mistake about its origin or about its process of transmission. It came to man. God delivered it to man. How? Through the Holy Spirit. It is not man-made. It is not the product of a brilliant mind. It is the heavenly to the earth-bound. That is uh, that is the sequence from whence it came and to whom it was given. So this is in keeping with Paul. Theonustos, God breathed all Scripture. It's in keeping with Peter. No prophecy came from man. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And. Furthermore, what did Jesus think about the Old Testament? In your notes, he says that it reflects its supernatural author in that it is perfect and unbreakable. I want you to look at how he explains this. He goes on. He says, and scripture cannot be broken. There's nothing in it that you can dismantle. There's nothing in it that you can punch a hole through. Why? Because it's not from man, it's from God. It's the word of God. He's the author. A book reflects its author. Folks, this is inerrancy, which I'm going to talk about in detail next week. He says, do you say of him of whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? Scripture can't be broken. It's God's book. God doesn't lie. There there are no lies. There are no mistakes. Now, some people struggle with this. They go, yeah, but he used human authors. God's perfect, but humans are not. And so he spoke it to imperfect humans. How does an imperfect human produce a perfect book? Short answer, uh, he doesn't. And yet we have one. So how do we have one? Because he definitely confirms that we do. How do we get it? I'm gonna explain that next week. All right? So you just sit on that one and you come back and bring a friend. Um uh, this is not a natural book. It's not a natural book. It can't be broken. So here you have a cool little juxtaposition here. You got well not it's a it's a comparison. You got Jesus and you've got the scriptures. You've got the living word, you've got the written word. You've got the word made flesh, you've got the word made ink. Now they're both in physical form. Meaning They are presented to the physical, to man. Why are they in physical form? So that physical beings can access them. To what end? That they might understand and receive the word from the Lord. And this is in your notes, the next point, that according to Christ's uh, uh, words here, the Old Testament is understandable. It's understandable. Understandable. He goes on in 37, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works. That you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. What works? He would perform miracles. (laughs) He would fulfill prophecy. What prophecy? The prophecy of the Old Testament. The prophecy of the Hebrew Scriptures. His works would confirm that. And all you got to do is open your eyes. Because presumably you've read the scriptures. And his implication is you're able to um, understand those scriptures. See, there is a move right now that attacks that. Not only do they attack the the reliability and the veracity of the Bible, they attack our ability to comprehend the Bible. We call this the perspicuity of scripture. The idea that the Bible can be understood. That is under attack right now people don't like it when you say the bible says why don't they like it because they they don't believe that your opinion could ever possibly be certain they dwell in the realm of constant questioning and uncertainty and they have glorified that who's to say who could know i mean that's your interpretation one of many your interpretation no better than my interpretation his interpretation her interpretation and they sound kind of convincing I mean you think about it and you're like well yeah that's true because I'm, uh, I'm fallen and my brain is fallen, and I, you know, how could I be trusted to understand it why would God deliver a communique to you and I that we could not understand wouldn't that speak to a flaw in God It logically doesn't even make any sense. But here's the bottom line for me. Jesus, Jesus is very plain that he assumes that man should be able to understand the scriptures. He had a conversation with Nicodemus, you recall, in John, I think it's John 3. He said, you know, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Well, old Nick had trouble with that. He didn't understand that. He's like, "Born again? What do you ta- how do you you climb up in your mom's womb again? How do you be born a second time? How can this be?" And what did Jesus say? He said, "You are a teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things?" And the implication is you're a learned man, Nicodemus, you know the scriptures, this should you should get this, buddy. 10 times in the gospels, Christ <laughs> he he very convincingly Asks uh, assertively with force, Have you not read? Have you not read? Guys, read your Bibles, read the scriptures. He tells a story about the rich man and Lazarus. You know, the rich man is perceived to be righteous in the eyes of his peers. Lazarus, he's a leper, covered with sores, he's a beggar, Uh, you know, he's destitute. They both die. They both go into the afterlife. You've got Lazarus. He is in paradise. He is at Abraham's side. And across the chasm, in agony, in hell, in fire, in torment, is the rich man. He didn't go where everybody expected him to go. And they can see each other across this chasm, but they can't reach one another. And the rich man calls out to Abraham and says, Send Lazarus to dip his finger in water and cool my tongue. And Abraham says, we cannot cross over to you and you cannot come to us. And he says, then send him to my brothers so they don't end up in this agony like me. And what does Abraham say? He says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Folks, that implies that the scriptures can be understood. And so we gotta dismantle this argument that that we can't comprehend the revelation of God, particularly the Old Testament. And so this is the perspective of Jesus on the Hebrew scriptures. And I think it's important to know this because I always make it a custom not to disagree with a guy that rises from the dead. That's just me. (laughs) Now I want you to look at Matthew 22. Take a look at Matthew 22. We're going to look at verse 41. Here's another little exchange. Jesus had all these marvelous exchanges with these religious elites, these guys who thought they were all that and a bag of chips. And so here's a group of Pharisees, and they're gathered together, and Jesus is just kind of needling them. He asks them a question. While the Pharisees were gathered, Jesus asked them, verse 42, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now, he knew that they didn't see him as the Christ. He's asking them, what do you think about the Christ? Christ is a a term the Jews used to refer to the Messiah. All right, Christ is not Jesus' last name, if you're wondering alright? It's, it's a messianic term. So they said, whose son is the Christ? Now he asked that question because every Jew knew the answer to this question because they, they were raised reading the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew scriptures. They were the first reader. They were like a first child's reader. And it's obvious who the Messiah's uh, uh, father is. And they said he's the son of David because that's what the scriptures teach. It goes back to the Davidic covenant. God promised David, your son or your descendant shall ascend to your throne and it will be an everlasting throne. And that person is regarded as the Messiah. And so that's how they answer. He's the son of David. And then in verse 43, he said to them, well, how is it then that David in the spirit, very important phrase, in the spirit. How is it that David in the spirit calls him Lord? saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And so what Jesus is doing here, he quotes from Psalm 110. He's he's quoting from David. Old Testament. And in doing so, he's making a point. He's saying, who's the Messiah? Messiah is the son of David. Okay, that's right. Now, why then does David call him Lord? How can he be David's son? And also David's Lord. Why is he taking this tack with the Pharisees? Because he knows that the Pharisees, as did most Jews of that era, had the wrong view of the Messiah. They saw the Messiah as a political leader. They thought they had a political problem. They thought that's what the chosen one, the Messiah, was coming to do. To solve their problems politically. And Jesus is trying to tell them, you don't have a political problem. Okay, the problem is not your political situation. The problem is you. You got issues. Issue. They're like, we got issues. I know. Issue. All right? And so the Jews are looking for that guy, and they recognize him as the son of God, and he says, yes, but he's also God. And, of course, he's speaking of himself. And so he's got this phrase, David in the spirit. All right, we're getting into inspiration again, aren't we? David is in the Spirit. Remember Peter said they're carried along by the Spirit. It's not something they came up with. So he's in the Spirit. And David, by the empowerment of that Spirit, says in verse 44, the Lord said to my Lord, he's quoting Psalms, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And so under the empowerment of the Spirit, David is able to see what no man sees, In the Old Testament era, and what he sees is that the Messiah would be divine. He's not a military leader. He's not a political leader. He is deity in human form. And he's not coming to do what you guys want him to do, Pharisees. He's coming to redeem you by his blood. It would blow their minds, the whole concept. They couldn't fathom it. And according to David, all authority would be given to this individual, he'd sit at God's right hand until such a time as what? As God would put all enemies under his feet. Has that happened yet? Literally. Have all the enemies of Christ been judged? Not yet. They're going to be. When? When he returns the second time. When he comes back, he's coming to judge and he's coming to rule And he's coming to establish his kingdom. That's when God will put all his enemies under his feet at the conclusion of the second coming. And so what is David doing? He is speaking of a time yet future. How in the world did David have access to all this knowledge? Because that is the revelation of God in the form of the Hebrew text. And so what does David, excuse me, what does Jesus think about the Hebrew text in your notes? It speaks accurately about things yet future. It prophesies. It sees the far-flung future history. David's got this complete Christology. He knows who the Messiah is, that he's divine. He is not a mere man. He's got a complete soteriology, uh, meaning as it pertains to our salvation. He's got the atonement in there. He's going to redeem us. He's going to restore us. He's got a complete eschatology, the end times, the fulfillment of prophecy, through this man. How does David know all that stuff? Because he was in the Spirit. Because the Old Testament is of God. It's divine. So as we look back, Paul, what do you, what's your take? What's your take, Paul, on the Old Testament? Uh, it's God breathed. Great. Peter, what's your take on the Old Testament? Well, men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's right. Paul, how much of it was God breathed? All of the scripture. Peter, how much of the scripture is God breathed? Uh, no prophecy came by man. It was all by the Holy Spirit. That's great. Jesus, you care to chime in? In fact, I do. <laughs> scripture cannot be broken. It's of God. It's perfect in every way. It can never be wrong. It's flawless. And now I want us to look at something that we looked at last week. Jesus in Luke 24, verse 44 He says, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the, and there's three three things he gives, the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Everything written in those three must be fulfilled, must be fulfilled. And so by that statement, here's what we learned about Christ's view on the Old Testament text. In your notes, it pictures Christ. In its totality, Jesus is not limited to the New Testament. He is all throughout your Bible. He just listed all the components of the Old Testament text. Everything that you and I have in our Old Testament is encompassed in what he said. The law, all the books of Moses, the prophets, that's everything from 1 Samuel through Malachi, all right? The Psalms is everything else that's in there. And it all pertains to him in some fashion. You see that the prophets speak of him. They prophesy about his coming. They prophesy about the works that he would do. They prophesy about his death, about his resurrection. They prophesy about his second coming. Far in the future after that, we see him pictured In the imagery of the Old Testament, all of the sacrifices, that old Jewish system where they shed the blood of goats and and lambs for the sin of a nation, pictures Christ. We see him in types. We see Jesus pictured in Adam. We see him pictured in Samson. We see him pictured in Joshua. We see him in Isaiah. We see him uh, in in David, in Joseph. He's all over the place in the Old Testament. And it, it just speaks to who he is. Folks, we don't unhitch from that. We don't dare unhitch from that. Now, does the Old Testament ever say anything about the New Testament? In point of fact, it does. If you look at Jeremiah 31, verse 31, here's what the prophet Jeremiah says. See, the, the Old Testament doesn't, the New Testament and the Old Testament, they don't live in a vacuum independent of one another. They're connected. And let me show you why Judaism is incomplete. It's not invalid. See, the Old Testament texts are not invalid. Why is there this fuss over the Old Testament anyway? I mean, we've, we just looked at Peter and Paul and Jesus. I mean, my goodness. Why would anybody buck against the Old Testament? Now, can we take it out of context? Sure, we can. Sure, we can do that. We can do that. Uh, but that's really not the issue here. There's a rebellion against it. Has this ever happened in church history before recent years? Absolutely. When? Uh, About half a century after the closing of the canon, you had a guy named Marcion in church history. He's regarded as the, the greatest heretic of the second century. You know what he said? He said the God of the Old Testament is completely different from the God of the New Testament. You ever heard that before? Anybody ever said, well, you know, the Old Testament presents a brutal... Uh, volatile, uh, harsh, unloving God. And the New Testament, well, that's, that's your merciful, humble, loving, gracious, life-giving God. And, you know, the, the, the God that would send Jesus is not the God of the Old Testament. You know where that thinking came from? came from Marcion, because he would read Paul And he would see Paul contrast law and grace. And he would assume erroneously that Paul is is rejecting the Old Testament. Not at all. Not at all. No, the fact of the matter is Marcion just could not reconcile it because he had not studied them in such a way that it made sense to him that Jesus was fulfilling the Old Testament. And so he was embarrassed by the Old Testament. He mocked it. Folks, Christians who claim Christ today that want to unhitch from the Old Testament, they're embarrassed by the Old Testament. They're uncomfortable. And if they they themselves are not embarrassed by it, they sense that others might be, and they don't want to get into it. they're, They're like, can't we just love people? Can't we just talk about Jesus? Can't we just live out our faith? You better live out your faith. But the purpose of living out your faith is because you're obedient to the Word of God. And so there has to be communicated In any gospel presentation, not merely actions, not merely attitudes, not merely sentiment, there's got to be communicated a standard. What is God's standard? And it is established by his first revelation to the Jews. And so when we read it, we read it in context because our goal in trying to be accurate we don't take all of the law and try to apply it in a modern sense do you guys abstain from shrimp and shellfish and all that stuff you guys make sure all the fibers of different types of fabric don't mix in your clothing are you guys observing all of the jewish feasts are you are you sacrificing a lamb in the proper way on the sabbath day no why not because you're not israel you're the church and we don't force on the church what was asked of Israel in the Old Testament era. Neither do we take the promises that God made to Israel and try to apply them to the church. And say, well, he's going to give us that land. He's going to make us a mighty nation. No, different covenant. And so here's, here's that different covenant. According to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31. He says, behold, the days are coming declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Guess what that is? That is Christ right there. That is the new covenant. That is, that is the grace by which we stand right here today. And so if it's a covenant, by the way, Testament, Old Testament, New Testament, you could also covenant, call it Old Covenant, New Covenant. Same thing. That's what the word testament means. A new covenant requires a new revelation. And so in your notes, the Old Testament predicts more revelation to come. Jeremiah says, we're not done. We're not done. And so, the Old Testament says, there will be more. Now, what does the New Testament say about itself? Just to kind of wind things down here, let's look at 2 Corinthians. Back to Paul. Back to where we started. Here's what he says, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He wrote this letter in response To some Greeks that were hassling him, they were saying, you're not an apostle. No, you came later. You're not one of the 12. You don't have any authority. And what's more, Paul, there's no wisdom in what you're showing us. Remember, they were Greeks. And so they're looking for the the philosophers. They're looking for uh, Aristotle, they're like, Paul, come on, there's got to be something philosophical here. You need to be like, you know, if A, uh, if a is B and C is uh, B and A is C and, you know, therefore there is a God and all this stuff. And you don't sound like Aristotle. Paul said, yeah, no, I know. There's a reason. There's a reason I don't sound like Aristotle. And he writes in 2 Corinthians 2, 1, he says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He says, I'm not trying to appeal to your intellectual pride, okay? Our message is not merely philosophical. It's revealed. He goes on, verse two, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You don't think I'm an apostle? I was an eyewitness to Christ and him crucified. This is something that happened in real time It happened in history. And so, in your notes, this is an apostolic message which is rooted in historic eyewitness reports. It is historically revealed. In your notes, it is historically revealed. This is not merely a philosophical message. This is not Aristotle. This is not Plato. This is not Socrates. It's not based on human brilliance. It's based on the revelation of God to man. You are a sinner. You need redemption. Human philosophy is just the pooled ignorance of people like you who are fallen. And so, no, this is not a standard philosophical message. It's revealed. And he says in verse 3, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And in my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is not a standard uh, philosophy, okay? It's not merely that. Philosophy, phileo sophia, love of wisdom. That's what philosophy means. However, it's not merely that, but it does contain a philosophy. It's just not a human philosophy. And Paul says as much. Look at verse six. He says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. You want wisdom? I got wisdom, but it's only for the mature. It's only for the obedient. You ready to be obedient? You can get this if you're obedient. He goes on. He says, although it is not, very important here, it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. He's drawing a distinction. This is something that is in for the long haul. It is timeless. It doesn't pass away. Have you ever engaged in something that passed away? (laughs) A trend? Maybe a clothing trend? Huh? Can we go on your Facebook page and find some interesting pictures of what you were wearing back in college or whatnot? Uh, we, we all have, have those things that we'd like to keep in the dark, you know, fashion statements that we once had. Jerry Seinfeld says that um, fathers, uh, uh, they, they tend to uh, wear what they were wearing in the last good year of their life. You know, whatever they were wearing around the time they got married, they just kind of lock that in, freeze it in fashion history, and ride that puppy out, you know. No comment. All right. He says it's not a wisdom of this age. So in your notes, what are we talking about? It's it's philosophically and eternally relevant. It does not pass away. I'm not Aristotle. The authors of the New Testament were just fishermen, all right? But it didn't matter that they weren't brilliant. All that mattered was the Spirit came to them and gave them something timeless that is passed on to you and to me. And he closes, verse 7, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. That's our Bible From beginning to end and we don't unhitch from any of it we are good stewards of it we got to be as paul said to timothy uh those who rightly divide the word of truth because we have no need to be ashamed of it Amen? amen amen let's pray Heavenly Father, I thank you for this group right here, how hungry they are for the word of God. I pray that you bless them. Would you uh, allow what we've talked about tonight to permeate their hearts, their minds as they ponder it, as they meditate on it, God. I pray that they would have an appreciation for the revelation before them uh, that you saw fit to make available to us, which you purposed to be understood, received, and applied. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.